passage, 1 Samuel 22. I've even given it to you guys. Sam did the first five verses last week. So we'll do the rest today. <clears throat> All right, starting there in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul was seated, spear in hand under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. He said to them, Listen, ben, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all the fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Amalek, son of Ahitub at Nob. Amalek inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. The king sent for the priest Amalek, son of Ahitub, and all the men of his family who were the priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword, inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me, lies in wait for me, as he does today? Amalek answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was this the... Uh, was that the, the day? Or was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. But the king said, "You will surely die, Amalek, you and your whole family." Then the king ordered the guards at his side, "Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me." But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priest of the Lord. The king ordered Dog, Diog, how he said, You turn and strike down the priest. So Dog the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen epihod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But the son of Melech, son of Ahutub, named Abiathar, Escape and fled to join David. He told David and Saul had, or he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar that day, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. All right, great. Long. I don't know, one chapter, I guess, worth of stuff. So 1 Samuel 22. Um, if you haven't been with us, previously what we've looked at is, um, well, last week we looked at David and how he responded to a fearful moment within his life. And this time we get a kind of glimpse or shot of what, how Saul reacts to his greatest fear. And what is Saul's greatest fear is losing control, losing his kingsmanship. As we've previously seen, Saul has established, or Saul has established himself as a selfish, insecure character. He is not concerned for the people of Israel or God, but that what matters to him is that he maintains 
uh, status of yeah, the kingsmanship, that he stays king. And so now we get to see in what, I guess, see a character tested and what happens when an insecure and controlling individual, individual's greatest fears come to actualization or the potential to come to actualization. How does he react? And we'll see as we go further in, you know, Saul attacks viciously. And we'll dive into this more, into the story about how he attacks and what he does specifically. But it's first important to remember who we're dealing with and realize the kind of character Saul is. A man who lives by his own rules, not God's, and will do whatever it takes to protect and preserve self. So as we go deeper into Saul's actions, you know, as we talked about before going through Samuel, hopefully we allow the example of Saul to be a mirror into our own lives, to show us the tendencies of our own hearts. Alrighty, so the first uh, point we'll make, or the first way in which Saul tries to continue to grip at his control and to control the situation is manipulation. So just the first point, and you know, we'll go through the, I guess specifically what he says here um, in a little bit, but just to kind of um, just go into some research on manipulation. I studied psychology a little bit. And unfortunately, manipulation is a very well studied field within domestic violence. Um, you know, there's a lot of research out there about the mechanisms on how to manipulate. And Saul demonstrates a couple of these here. The two primary emotions, in case you want to know, on how to manipulate someone is to play on fear and guilt. Those are the two emotions you want to instill within somebody. Both are very strong emotions and heavily cloud your ability to make decisions or make um, clear, practical, pragmatic choices. I learned that from Lonnie, actually. I think it's inhibitory emotion. She told me the other day, so. So we look at first how Saul strikes fear into his men. That's the first one. So as you see there, I have it up there as well. A couple verses, spear in hand. You know, immediately paints this picture of Saul, you know, threatening his men. He's not a leader. He is a tyrant holding a spear. You know, it's meant to develop this hostage situation. And, you know, he's literally, in a sense, holding a gun to their head as he's speaking to them and ha they're having this conversation. So as I said, he's establishing a hostile situation. You don't respond to me correctly. Well, then here's a spirit coming in your way. He's trying to bully his way for the men to listen and obey him. But the other, I guess, ironic thing is as he's, you know, cocked back, holding the spear, ready to go, he's also, you know, oh, if you do obey me, though, I'll lavish gifts on you. You know, here's some vineyards, control of men, like he's saying, you know, listen to me and look what you get, the kingdom and all these great things. You disobey me, as I said, you're going to get a spear. And so Saul sets the terms of the relationship. You know, it's completely conditional on what he thinks is good and true. You do what I like, here's a present. Cross me, as I said, there's a spear. No one can establish or, yeah, no one can speak truth or say something contrary to his desires out of fear of getting stabbed. <laughs> He establishes these terms under the pretense that either you're either for me or against me. And that's exactly what manipulators do, right? They create this narrative like you're, you're on that side or you're with me on this side. And whatever you say or do that is contrary to how I believe or think, then you are against me. You are not for me. And so that's what he's, you know, he's talking about to Melech and the guys here. You can't, you can't be for David and you can't be for me as well. And as I said, it kind of blocks off from any 
I mean, it strikes fear into their hearts and anxiety, right? They can't say anything that will be contrary to what he says or believes. You know, he has cornered and forced his men into a black and white situation. That's the first bit. The other one that we'll go over is the, the guilt emotion. And this one's probably much more common amongst us today. Um, I mean, if you just look at what he's saying to his men, right? He's first of all lying, right? Saul and his men are the ones actively seeking David at the moment, yet he twists it as if David and Jonathan are hatching this conspiracy or this plan to go after the kingdom and grab the kingship for themselves. You know, he's, um, and then he, I mean, as he continues to go on and develop the guilt within the men, he uses the most classic line that you can ever use when you're trying to guilt trip somebody, you know, don't you care about me? <laughs> That's what he says in verse eight, don't you care about me, right? Don't you, con don't you consider me? Right? Whenever you're trying to bend somebody to your will, you're trying to develop that guilt of, you know, as I said, don't you love me? As I said, this is very common in domestic relationships, right? So the classic is, if you love me, you would do this, right? And he's distracting the men from the truth of the situation, which is that they're the ones hunting them down. And he is convoluting the truth with his feelings and how he is the one being hunted and attacked, right? That's how he's twisted it. As if all his actions are now justified because he is the victim. He's turned himself into the victim. This self-pity and woe is me, don't you understand, is meant to generate guilt amongst the true victims, his men. He has established for himself a sort of barrier, right? You can't do or say anything that might hurt a victim because, you know, like myself, who's already hurting. I do, um, if I do or try and, you know, speak or say something into this person's life, then you're an unsympathetic jerk who's trying to bring a victim even lower than what they really are. And he, Saul understands this, so he plays into that hand. Again, he is the one who is hunting David and just two chapters ago has attempted to kill Jonathan with his spear, yet he is the victim. There's no responsibility for his actions. He is so self-deceived and self-centered, he can't even you know, share a story correctly or he, the narrative's twisted in his mind. And this is in stark contrast to David. You see there at the bottom of the chapter when Abiathar, the last remaining priest, goes to David, what does he do? David takes responsibility for his actions. And what happens to Abiathar's family, right? I mean, back in the previous chapter, if you weren't here, he knew that this Edomite was their dog, dog, whatever his name is, was there with uh, him and the priest. And David was in a rough place at the time, and he didn't put in the correct measures to prevent the priest or the Edomite from telling Saul um, about the David being there with the priest. I mean, in essence, long story short, he's in some sense saying, I knew what was going to happen and I didn't do anything about it. But he takes the responsibility, contrary to Saul, turns himself into the victim and moves on with the priest. He takes it on the chin and continues on, as we'll see and Jack will do in the next uh, chapter. But Saul has taken emotional hostage of his men to gain control, to know they aren't going anywhere, and he still has a kingdom to rule, right? What is a king without its subjects? Saul is attempting to twist the truth and his men to follow his cause that it, um, that, so that he remains in control. 
He's playing on feelings of fear and guilt and the obligation and loyalty. And we have to see this for what it is, just a aggressive, blind grab for power at whatever the cost. You know, but the next question we have to go over is, you know, what happens when you can't manipulate someone? You annihilate them. Oh, that is the contrary to going back and forth. But yeah, you annihilate them. Right? We have here with the, now moving on from the Benjamites to how he communicates with the Melech. Is almost the same way. He uses very similar uh, language as he does here. You know, he talks about um, how you've conspired against me for the kingdom. Again, he's trying to do the same thing to Amalek as he did his men. He's trying to get that guilt and that fear within him. But Amalek doesn't have any of it, right? He, he defends himself. He says, you know, as we go, right, if you look in the passage, I don't think I have it up there. But he, you know, pleads with Saul, like, you know, David is captain of your bodyguard, son-in-law, loyal, respected in your household. You know, how, is, how was I supposed to know, right? He's not given in to this manipulation. So how does Saul respond? He, he takes care of him. He gives him the spear. As we talked about earlier, you know, you don't follow the conditions of the relationship that I have sent out or established, then you're gone. You're no use to me. And that's exactly what Saul does in this situation, except in an extremely gruesome way, right? He kills the whole tribe of priests. And Saul's blind rage and absolute focus on obtaining control, he eliminates any voice that has a hint of challenging his kingship. And I say hint because Amalek's actions and him defending himself is really just, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's nothing, right? It's Saul reading into the situation and deciding you're defending yourself, you're not for me, you're gone, right? He's so fueled by his fears, insecurities, he eliminates an entire tribe of his own people that he is meant to be leading. You know, you can literally feel Saul clawing for control and power that he holds over his people. And his fears and insecurities, he annihilates. Even those men around him knew, right? Like, hey man, this has gone too far. Nobody would... No, none of his men would touch the priests, right? Saul had to get a foreigner to do it. And thankfully, you know, for God giving them grace, gave them some clarity in that moment. And as I said at the beginning, right, we have to look at this uh, as a mirror, right? Saul, we are Saul. And we take these approaches in our relationships all the time. You know, we have fears and insecurities and identities we wish to uphold amongst our peers and the people around us. And if we give in to those fears, we spend our time manipulating people to take our cause or reaffirm our views of self. And if I can't manipulate you and bend you to my will, then you're a threat and I'm no longer going to engage with you. You're useless to me. I can't control you or your perceptions of me. Well, then you're gone. Someone is trying to you know, help you and speak to you and um, I guess say something else contrary to your beliefs but wants to help you in that end. Um, and it's just a complete disregard for that, the annihilation. You know, we have to be careful and watchful of our insecurities and fears and how we react in them. When was the last time that you twisted a story to make someone sympathetic for your cause or threatened your friendship with someone because you think um, or because they said something or said that you are wrong in a situation? You know, we have to allow our fears to be exposed for what they are and have people in our lives who won't be so easily manipulated and twisted by our self-pity. <clears throat> Unfortunately, you know, or maybe not 
fortunate for us and fortunate for Saul, but his insecurities are played out on a much larger scale, right? His fears lead him to annihilate a tribe. But this just isn't any tribe. As we see here in uh, 1 Samuel 15, you know, God has put aside this specific tribe, the Levites, for an intentional reason. He is their God's people for a specific purpose. They're the God squad. I'd sound like the God squad. <laughs> and, um, yeah, God has spoken. I guess Saul's actions to eliminate the priests is just as much an act of eliminating God from Israel. God has spoken and told Saul, because of your blatant disobedience and stubborn heart, you will no longer be king. And so, as I said, so Saul eliminates that voice. And if you don't remember, I put it up on the slides as well. 1 Samuel 15 is when all this happens and when um, there's this dialogue between the two. Um, I mean, long story short of the situation, um, Saul was requested by God to completely destroy the Malachites, livestock and all. The reason for the request had a couple of reasons, um, but the primary reason was this, you know, the Malachites were evil people, and God wanted Saul to take a stance against evil and completely wipe it out, and, you know, the same stance as we should take against sin, completely get rid of it. But out of peer pressure from Saul's men, um, Saul chose to keep the Malachite king and all the livestock alive, which is in direct disobedience to what God had requested from him. After he was confronted on his disobedience, he tried to blame shift and then asked Samuel to reinstate him before the elders so that his name as king wasn't tarnished. His actions exposed and revealed the man not after God's heart, but after his own, seeking his own desires, completely selfish. I mean, and now back to this present situation, Saul will eliminate the priests and the livestock, Right? at any cause or because it is, oh, sorry, there we go, and the livestock because it is establishment in his mind that threatens his kingship. Saul takes a stance against God of a total annihilation. He's trying to get rid of God that God wanted Saul to take against the Malachites. Instead of removing a great evil, he is trying to remove God from Israel. And this is supposed to be like Saul's ultimate act of disobedience, right? You know, his absolute rebellion against God. And the greatest irony of this passage that I find is that in doing this and in killing these priests, Saul is actually fulfilling God's word. If you don't remember, again, we're doing a lot of blasts from the past but in this passage. But in 1 Samuel 2, again, I have it up there, um, there was a priest named Eli who glorified himself and his sons above God. And because Eli did not restrain his sons, God punished Eli with a multi-generational, um, I don't know if curse is the right word, but he, he's established and stated, as it's up there, that um, no one within your family line is going to reach middle age. And this is, um, again, we don't, a lot of people see this and, oh, that's kind of harsh, but Sam talked about it when he went over 1 Samuel 2, so if you have questions about the curse and why God's punished in this way, you can speak to him, not me. <laughs> He's the, the shorter guy in the striped shirt, but just slightly shorter, striped shirt back there, <laughs> in the polo. <laughs> when you get the mic, you have to use it. 
No time, uh, yeah, as I said, no time to get into it now. But now Saul is directly fulfilling and carrying out that punishment that God had established against Eli. You know, I have it up there, but Eli, Phineas, Ichabob, I think Ahitub, and Amalek. Right? That's, this is within Eli's line, and Saul is carrying out God's word. Which is incredibly ironic because this action is meant to be the ultimate sign of rebellion. And the point of that I'm trying to make, and you know, if, if it's lost, but that regardless of what you do and try and kick against God, God is the one in control, right? You know, he's, Saul spent this whole chapter weaseling his way around, you know, to, to grab hold of any authority he can. And his greatest act of obedience is actually fulfilling God's word. <clears throat> Especially, I mean, this is a quite sad passage. I mean, it's quite gruesome. A whole nation, not nation, but tribe is eliminated. It can seem like an absolute loss. And it is a very dark moment. It was a dark moment in David's life as well at the moment, at the time. You know, but thankfully for us, we have context in the whole story. And we can have great security in the fact that God is still in the background, you know, orchestrating and working for his good. And no matter what tyrant is on the loose, God will use that tyrant for his glory. You know, Sam spoke about this last week, about how David is in a dark time, but he needs some refining before he's going to be king. And God uses Saul as the refiner, right, as one of the tools to help refine David. And these two men are great examples um, and pictures of different ways in which we interact with God. One chooses to follow and live his life under complete, or maybe attempts to live under submission to God, and we have seen and will continue to see in the coming weeks, right, how he, I guess, takes the appropriate steps to make sure his will is aligned with God or that his actions are aligned with God's. And while Saul, on the other hand, is like a child who pushes, screams, and kicks against God's will, both will be used for God. But you have the choice of how you want to go. You know, when it comes to God's sovereignty, a lot of people have this issue of it takes away from my own individual actions. If God is the one in complete control, where is my individual freedom? And I think the story of David and Saul illustrates this well. You know, you have a choice. You may not be able to control the outcome in the end, but you have a, role, you have a choice in the role you want to play within the outcome. You can choose to be like David and submit to God and his authority, or choose a life like Saul, who constantly pushes against it to live purely for self. God will use them both based on their decisions in the end. And just to, I guess, wrap up here within the you know, last couple of verses, I mean, you can spend all your life manipulating and annihilating people to gain whatever sense of control makes you feel secure. But in the end, uh, it amounts to nothing because we are not in control. We, in the end, will submit to God. David understood this, and he... This, um, sorry, David understood this because he could have hatched a plan to take over the kingdom much sooner, right? And as I said, as we'll see in the coming weeks, he's, he's had many opportunities to take control for himself and make himself king, but he doesn't. He won't push his situation or attempt to control it because he knows he is not in control and he has complete trust that God will work the situation well. You know, what is of utmost important to him is following God. As we leave here today, I encourage you to think about your greatest fear and how you orchestrate and manipulate situations to keep your fears at bay. 
and consider in what areas of my life do I wrestle to submit with God. And we need to remember that God is the true authority. And like David, face our fears with God and grow and learn, having the security that God is the one in control. We'll just pray real quick, and then I think we'll do one more song and call it a day. Dear Lord, I uh, thank you for this time. I thank you that, yeah, we could uh, just come here and dive into your word, Lord. I'm grateful for um, Saul and David and these stories you have given us just to, yeah, really help us evaluate our hearts and to see and know what's, uh, yeah, what's going on below, Lord. I just pray that as we evaluate and look, Lord, that we see our manipulative tactics, our ways in which we annihilate people and that, yeah, we can come to you and just understand and know that you are the one in control no matter how hard we try to gain it. I just pray that in the coming weeks we just remember that, yeah, you are king and you are Lord and that we live life in that way. I love you. Thank you for this time. Amen. Sorry, just one more thing I forgot to do at the beginning is a couple announcements. Um, they're really quick. It's just midweek. Uh, this coming week, I think it's the third. Just pulling it up on my phone. Yeah, and the third, there's on the third. There's a new series on holiness that we're doing for midweeks. So the third will be women first, and then the seventeenth will be men. We'll go over that series. So it will come out in the newsletter as well. But if you want to put in your diaries, those are the announcements for this week. So thanks, guys, and uh, Trev will do the last song. Let's all stand.